Number 655, we'll again use that later in our service this morning. And what a blessing it is to be able to sing the songs that we've already sung, highlighting not only the greatness of our Lord and the precious blessing of His Son, but also the privilege it's ours to be a child of God. As you may well have noticed, the, the title of the lesson today will take us to the concept of a particular covenant. The covenant that the Bible will recognize as that of marriage. And as we give some thought to it, we certainly will develop a few considerations that will be very helpful and also very encouraging to us in a number of ways. Allow me to begin, if I might, with these introductory words on this slide before you. The word covenant is one that certainly we will give some attention to shortly, but may I simply say that the concept is a rather oft-occurring one within the Word of God. In fact, approximately 300 times in the King James Version of the Bible, we encounter this word covenant and, in a number of ways, some more extensive presentations of it as well, even indirectly, in a number of other passages. The very first time that word ever occurs is in the context of Genesis chapter 6. There, as God directed words to Noah, He told him that He was going to make a covenant with Noah and with his sons in light of the protection that they would feel as they would be aboard that ark in the character, of course, of the flood that was shortly to come. The very last occurrence is in the closing chapter of the Hebrew letter, where there we learn and rather directly see that it's the blood of the everlasting covenant through the nature of Jesus Christ our Lord. That's, of course, a reference to the New Testament, the New Covenant, if you please. And that led me to make that next comment as well. You and I are very comfortable using the word testament, especially in light of the Word of God. We speak about the Old Testament or the New Testament. And yet the word testament is in many ways another way of speaking about covenant. And thus, the new covenant is the New Testament and vice versa. However, today we're not going to talk about those kind of covenants in general. We're going to focus our efforts upon thinking rather directly about the marriage covenant. As we do that, I hope that we will certainly learn some things or be reminded of some things about the Word of God. But to do that, there's a particular passage that we will use that will begin our study, our consideration. Let me invite you to turn to 2 Chronicles 15. In that particular passage, we encounter some interesting developments as it relates to a covenant. The particular covenant that we'll encounter there is not specifically a marriage, admittedly, but it does present in a very beautiful way, in a very lovely way, many of the attributes that go along with a covenant. Because there is a covenant that is enjoined or made, and so we will use that chapter to assist us in appreciating some of the features of a covenant. Rather than read the entirety of that chapter, allow me to simply direct your attention to a few of the presentations that it makes. And I've tried to highlight them in order, at least upon that slide before you. In terms of a covenant, you and I might well ask, so what is one? And what constitutes one? How does one appreciate the nature of the entering of such a thing? And how does one understand the termination of such a thing? All of those are excellent questions. In fact, they are rather far-reaching questions. On this slide, let's consider a few features of a covenant that was entered on that occasion. This was in the days of the children of Israel. 
the particular king at the time was a man named Asa. And as you notice some of what I have reminded you on the slide, we learned that God commissioned a prophet. This prophet was named Oded, O-D-E-D. And he came and he delivered some rather interesting messages to the man Asa. As he did, allow me to just point out a verse about some of those messages. Verse 3 says, Now for a long season Israel had been without the true God, and without a teaching priest and without law. God makes the point. The children of Judah had for quite some time been unfaithful to the Lord. And in that state, God had distanced Himself from them. Or maybe I should say it like this, they had distanced themselves from Him. And yet God said during that time, the people had thus been without. But now He says, they have turned to Me. They have redirected their attention to Me. And in light of that, He's about thus to highlight a reaffirmation of a covenant. And we're going to see some interesting things they did in the interest of reaffirming or making that covenant. Looking even forward on the slide, you may notice that Asa then took courage. In light of what God, through the prophet, reminded him, he took courage and he acted. May I direct your attention to verse 8. And when Asa heard these words, and the prophecy of Oded the prophet, he took courage and put away the abominable idols out of all the land of Judah and Benjamin, and out of the cities which he had taken from Mount Ephraim, and renewed the altar of the Lord. That was before the porch of the Lord. These words that came before King Asa, they stirred him up. And in so doing, he took action. You'll notice he removed the officiating matters and the offending matters that had been true of the peoples before him. He took out the abominable idols. He set them aside and did away with them. In verse number 9, He gathered all Judah and Benjamin and the strangers with them out of Ephraim and Manasseh and out of Simeon, for they fell to him out of Israel in abundance when they saw that the Lord... His God was with him. You may notice that there was a rather solemn gathering. He brought the people together, and in the presence of them, he highlighted a number of rather direct and solemn matters. The next verse says, So they gathered themselves together at Jerusalem in the third month, in the fifteenth year of the reign of Asa. So there was a particular set time wherein they assembled, they gathered, they came together, and at this time there was an official ceremony in which the affirmation, the placement, if you please, of the covenant, in fact, took place. So in verse 11, "...they offered unto the Lord the same time of the spoil which they had brought, seven hundred oxen, seven thousand sheep." And note verse 12, "...they entered into a covenant." to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul. Now, the solemnity and the seriousness of it was even highlighted in an additional way in the next verse, that whosoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel should be put to death, whether small or great, whether man or woman. And they swear unto the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting and with trumpets and with cornets. And all Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and sought him with, with their whole desire. And he was found of them, 
and the Lord gave them rest round about. Now, more things could be said about it, but at least in the highlight of the passages we've noted, there are several truths you'll note near the bottom of that slide as we begin to, to elaborate somewhat further upon them. The children of Israel entered a covenant. That's what verse 12 told us. And as they did so, a number of features both before it and after it took place. Features that are very remindful of some powerful elements of a covenant. At this point, why don't we make some conclusions, some consequences of it, and apply it to marriage. First of all, we would agree that marriage is to a covenant. The text that Brother Dennis read from Malachi 2.14 calls it that twice. Now, admittedly, that was in the day you and I would call the, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And so the, the nature of it then is certainly something the New Testament never set aside, at least in that detail. It remains a covenant. In fact, let's reread the way in which the prophet Malachi highlighted it. As God spoke through Malachi, these are His words. Yet you say, Wherefore? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt, dealt treacherously. Yet she is thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. You'll notice there that the phrase covenant was used in regard to marriage. In regard to that which takes place between a husband and his wife. Given that the Word of God describes it that way, it certainly then would behoove us to give some thought to what about the, the specifics of what that would entail and the way in which marriage ought to be viewed. I believe each of us would have no trouble understanding that we live in a time, and it has been so for a few decades, certainly, wherein the human family doesn't always look upon marriage as a covenant. It is seen much more lightly, much more trivially, and without the consideration that goes with the solemnity of a covenant. But yet, in light of our understanding and the Bible's presentation, we would certainly do well to reflect on the, cov the covenant of marriage, and we shall do that from this point forward in our lesson this morning. And so on this particular slide, would you note some of these things? Many have asked through the ages and the years, so what is it that solidifies what is it that, if you please, puts in place the ordination of a covenant, specifically that of marriage? When is it solidified? When is it, if you please, arriving at a point wherein one can claim this marriage is finalized? Many questions have been asked about that. Today we shall see that answer, and we'll see to the presentation of what's involved in the nature and the light of a covenant. But in light of our study of Sacred Chronicles 15, let's go ahead and note a few things that seem beautifully consistent and they help enhance our understanding greatly. Would you consider with me the understanding of a preamble that goes with a covenant? And by preamble I mean this. It is a reminder of not only the parties involved in this covenant, but an appreciation of the definiteness with which those parties enter into it. Now notice that was true here. In verse number 8 and 9, Asa called together all Israel, specifically it is said to be the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. They were the ones that were entering this covenant. It was not the other tribes. It was not the other people upon earth like the Moabites or the Ammonites or others. It was these people. They thus 
had come together at this point of appreciation of entering into this covenant. Well, think about the way typical marriage arrangements often are done today. You have an officiating person, a minister in many cases, who perhaps in light of the two who have assembled will say, do you take her to be your lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward? And then he will address the woman, do you take this man to be your husband? Notice, parties are being definitely identified. There can be no question who is entering into the terms involved in this covenant. It's a direct assertion, if you please, of the nature of making it official as to who's being involved. But you'll notice that there are many more things that are involved besides just the preamble. I've asked you to give thought to the description, as I will call it. Now, what do we mean by this? You'll notice here Asa gave a description of his covenant. So specific was it that it involved the terms whereby even those who would not with all their heart seek the Lord, they were to be put to death. Well, when one gives thought to a marriage covenant, it's very important to take note of the description. I would think it entirely proper. In fact, it's almost an essential matter that the person officiating at this ceremony take the time, and it is not wasted time, to ensure that there's a recognition of the nature of this covenant of marriage. Who established it? God did. On what terms did He establish it? Genesis chapter 2. What about the continuing nature of this covenant? You find it all through the Bible covering thousands of years. All that's important information so that the parties entering this covenant, and yea, all who are present, will be aware of the solemnity, the rights, the promises, and the privileges that go along with it. It is not to be entered lightly. Now on the top of that slide, I've asked you to notice the Bible talks about then in Genesis 2, the nature of who formulated it and on what occasion He did it. Well, we will remember that that deep sleep had been brought upon Adam. The rib was used to make a woman. God brought her to the man, and then God made this statement, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave it to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Well, as God made that statement, the continuing permanence that went with it, He highlighted in a beautiful way that their primary devotion was now to one another. It was not to mom and dad anymore. It was to these, him to his wife and she to her husband. Well, as that kind of idea was presented, it brings us to point number three, the stipulations, as I will call it. Did you notice? Even Asa understood the nature of that context as he stated the stipulations connected to that covenant. When you and I think about marriage, aren't we well aware? Every ceremony likely we've ever been to, these have been highlighted. I've asked you to notice at least the way in which they typically are stated. Not to say that the preacher might not use slightly different wording, but it always goes somewhat like this. Do you, again, take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish? Those are stipulations. They are qualifications that go with the covenant. And again, 
the identical words are stated with respect to the woman with regard to her husband. The other way around. But note that they are the stipulating matters that go with this issue of a covenant. Now, when Asa stated those, again, the people agreed to them. They were willing to enter into them with all their heart, the text says. Well, today, when these marriage ceremonies take place, the preamble taken care of, the description set forth, the stipulations presented. Look at number four. A depository, as I will call it. Now, you might ask, well, in what place is a depository in this? Notice some of the issues that go with it. By that, I mean the filing of a written copy that holds an element in permanence. Now, in the light of the children of Israel, you and I know the genealogical records of the Old Testament. How seriously they were, not only in light of the marriages, but the children born to those marriages and for generations. How that those were utilized to not only appreciate land inheritance, but all the other rights and privileges that went with the tribes and their families. The book of 1 Chronicles is a prime example of that, isn't it? But even in the New Testament, we see appreciations of it, both in the book of Matthew and also Luke. But in terms of this depository, you'll notice it's not unusual for there to be appreciations that go with rather periodic reminders of this covenant. Now, you might think with some interest about the old law of Moses. Wasn't it true that God instilled in them some periodic reminders of the covenant that they had made? For instance, every Sabbath they were to meet. They were to undergo various matters in consideration for that which they had entered into. Well, today, isn't it true with regard to marriage? We do this as well. We celebrate an anniversary every year. So on that day each year, we set aside an opportunity, and gentlemen, we shouldn't ever forget it, to remember the nature of that covenant we entered and the particular blessings and the stipulations to which we agreed as we entered into it. It is something to behold that this fourth element, this depository as I've called it, in our day, we notice, of course, that that official filing takes place with our government. So the officiate over that ceremony, it is his responsibility to make sure the proper papers are filed with the state of Tennessee so that that marriage is then recorded in the proper place in the, in the respective books. But let's go on even besides the depository. Witnesses. Did you notice? Asa made reference to and the identical appreciation of the witnesses that were present on that occasion. Verse number 10 again states it like this. So they gathered themselves together at Jerusalem in the third month. So it wasn't just Asa and another person or two. There were a notable group or set of witnesses that were aware of this covenant and were mindful of its terms, its stipulations, and any blessings that would go with it. Well, isn't that still true with regard to, to marriages? Even if a couple goes to the courthouse to get married, whoever the court clerk is, he must at least find some other person to serve as a witness. So he may use, say, the, the administrative assistants in his office. He may find someone in the office next door, but someone must be able to serve as the witnesses 
for the event of the entrance of this covenant. So too, in most marriage ceremonies that I'm aware of, and certainly those that I have the privilege of being a part of, I always make note of the witnesses who have assembled, those who can give attestation to the entrance of these two into this covenant. Now, of particular note would certainly be the best man and the maid of honor. So if those individuals are selected, they do have the privilege of serving in a rather notable role, each one a particular highly elevated witness to the events of that day, to again the covenant that is being entered. You may note in light of the witnesses, it brings us to the various blessings and curses that again go with the terms of this covenant. You may notice that at least in the Old Testament, the example here, death was the penalty for those who would not at least agree to the entrance of the covenant. So that was pretty serious. But I would say that we too are aware about the terms of a covenant. Till death do us part. Now those words are in, at least in principle a part of every marriage ceremony. And surely any officiant that's aware of the teaching of the Bible would make sure to use those words at least once or twice during the course of it. Because it's the plan of God that marriage be a lifelong arrangement. Till death do us part. You'll also notice that there's another part of it that usually occurs near the end of that particular ceremony. So help us God. Or so, so help me God. Sometimes that's a part of the direct words that are asked to be repeated on the part of both the groom and the bride. So far as you and I can see, many corresponding elements reminding us about the covenant that is the covenant of marriage. The oath. Now when you and I think about an oath, we think about a binding vow. That is to say, this thing to which I'm giving promise that it shall be that to which I will be true throughout the fullness of the terms which have been stated upon me. Did you notice that the word oath was used in verses 14 and 15 here? Those people who entered that covenant in 2 Chronicles 15, they were entering an oath, and they were in essence swearing their affirmation to the terms of that covenant. I've stated it on the slide that again, the nature of that idea is certainly a very interesting one, isn't it? The next element is the exchange, something to solemnize this particular matter. Now you'll notice what they did in verse number 15, but in our marriage ceremonies today, there's often the exchange of rings. Now sometimes there are other activities during the course of the ceremony. Maybe the husband and wife-to-be, they jointly light a candle. Or maybe they jointly undergo some other activity highlighting the union that is being forced and made on that occasion by the power of God. Of course, the exchange of rings may be a, a very common way of doing it. But number eight, there's an official pronouncement. So in other words, the ceremony doesn't end without there being some official pronouncement that may well go something like this, I now pronounce you husband and wife. Well, the pronouncement has now been officially made. Prior to that time, they weren't married. The preamble may have taken place. 
Various other elements may have been true. But once the pronouncement has now taken place, the deed is done. These two have agreed to enter into this covenant. They have agreed to its terms. They have agreed to the other elements, including the blessings and cursings that have gone with it. And as they entered into it then, now the pronouncement was officially final. You may notice on the slide, it's not at all unusual for there to be a celebration that takes place. It took place there, didn't it? In the wording of, again, verses 14 and 15, today you and I appreciate the same. It's rather common for the husband and wife to now have a reception in which they invite their friends or others who may well have been a part of the ceremony and the other guests who are present, that they will celebrate with a meal, celebrate with some conversation, but a time, of course, of, of great rejoicing. All of these ideas lead us to, to note the, the particular matter, the particular issue that is a time of very interesting consideration. Something to be said is certainly the covenant that is the covenant of marriage. As you and I reach that particular point, this last slide is one that at least takes us into the New Testament to think with some degree of interest about the features of what Jesus had to say about the covenant of marriage. Do you recall the very first miracle He ever did was at a marriage feast in Cana of Galilee? Highlighting, you see, that He gave great the heaven's approval and heaven's beautiful view toward the reality of marriage. Many of the apostles themselves were married, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We know on one occasion that Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, Matthew chapter 8. We also are aware that many of the sweetest teachings of the New Testament at least have a lovely background of marriage as a part of it, as in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 and following. So, the covenant of marriage. We've at least learned this morning upon reflecting on the character of, of what that covenant involves. That's, it's expected then that anybody that enters a covenant, whether it be marriage or otherwise, it's expected to be true to the terms to which you've agreed, to be true to the nature of that which you've given consent toward. Surely as we think about marriage, it's a reminder to each of us of the sweet description that God has given and His intent for what it should be. As far as some of the particulars we've noted, it also leads us to say this. Given the solemnity and the interesting covenant that is that of marriage, it's also to be understood that the termination of it must also be handled with extreme caution and an understanding of what goes in with that too. Only God can then determine that time of, of, of termination. What God has joined together, let not man put asunder, in the words of Matthew 19.6. Only He thus can give the terms, the qualifications, if you please, when that particular covenant has been set aside. Because after all, He joined them in heaven, and only heaven can determine when they could be disjoined. So today, when we give thought to marriage, and the interesting set of features that go with it isn't a reminder of how serious it is. Isn't it somewhat sad that on occasion 
we see examples today, sometimes on TV, sometimes otherwise, wherein marriage is approached so lightly. It seems as though it is much more a time of humor, much more a time of simply getting this over with, rather than understanding the lifelong nature of the covenant that was made. Maybe one last thing on that slide, given the nature of the covenant of marriage, then as far as its termination, that certainly would have to be in terms of only what God says can lead to that which would be a divorce. And obviously, in Matthew 19, that is tailored to sexual unfaithfulness, fornication, on the part of one or the other of the spouses. When that's true, you and I recognize God grants that innocent party the right to remarry. But even then, the nature of the official setting aside of that covenant, no doubt took time, and a judge would have to be the one, the official that would declare the official termination of that marriage. The interesting nature of God's presentation of that certainly reminds us that all the ages of how powerful is the notion of marriage. This conclusion slide is one that attempts to very briefly summarize some of our considerations this Sunday morning. The covenant of marriage is often one wherein we are reminded in the Word of God from the great details of Genesis 24 when we remember that Isaac entered into marriage there with Rebekah all the way until our last examples of it in the New Testament. The great power that is the covenant of marriage is a reminder from the example of 2 Chronicles 15 of the terms that go into it and the features and the characteristics that in fact it displays. Marriage is a covenant, and therefore it must be treated with the utmost of divine and biblical respect because that sweetness and those terms we are agreeing to. Today, as we close our lesson this morning, we have come to appreciate then one of the covenants of the Bible, that of marriage. But aren't we so honored to think about the covenant that God bestows upon those who are obedient to His will? Because we too, at the time we're baptized, we're entering a covenant. A covenant that will lead to the redemption of our soul eternally. That covenant demands our faithfulness to it throughout our life. Revelation 2 verse 10. It may be today that as you and I consider ourselves, maybe I haven't been as faithful to that covenant as I should be. Maybe though once I was, maybe I'm not today. May I say that the God of heaven would so lovingly desire you and I to be faithful to His side and whatever have been those infractions that we have lived and done to that covenant, He's willing to forgive them if we will simply do that which He's commanded. Today, if you and I find ourselves in that category, what's commanded is this, we must repent of those sins that's required of us. Acts 17 verses 30 and 31. And upon that repentance, as we will acknowledge, confess those sins, He said, if you will confess them, He'll be faithful and just to forgive them. Today, the wonderful invitation of the Lord's extended to you and me. And if we find ourselves, again, not satisfactory to a covenant that we might have made with Him, it's time to make things right. It's time to come back to where we know we're saved and that He will, in fact, shower us with the blessings of all eternity. If you've never become a Christian, though, today, what a day this would be. 
the 24th of October, 2021, your spiritual birthday, the day in which your name written into the Lamb's Book of Life. That book, you see, has within it the names of those who are saved, the names of those who are faithful members of the body of Christ. Today, if we could be of some assistance to you, and we hope we could be, you need to believe in the Lord, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. And if we could help you in that regard today, we'd be delighted to do it. While together we stand and while we sing.